So the Church of Sardis is a tough one to preach on for two reasons. One is that it is the first church we have run into, although we will run into one more in the weeks to come, that is wholly criticized and not praised at all. There are, you might remember this, we did Smyrna a few weeks ago. Smyrna is only praised. They are only commended by Jesus. There will be another church next week, Philadelphia, that is only commended by Jesus. There are three churches, and this is the majority of them, that are both commended and criticized at the same time. Last week, we saw that with Thyatira, and we saw it earlier with Ephesus and with Pergamum. And at the end of our series, Laodicea, like the Church of Sardis, is only criticized. You might think that that midway through when Jesus says, well, you know, after all this kind of criticism, he says in verse four, yet you still have a few names in Sardis. You might think, well, well, Jesus is praising something there, but most commentators agree that's not a commendation as much as a concession. That's saying, when I read the Church of Sardis, I think of Billy Crystal's character in The Princess Bride, the healer, do you guys remember this? If you've not seen that movie, you need to see it, where they bring in the guy who's, who seems to be dead, he's killed, and Billy Crystal looks at him and he's dead on the table and he goes, oh, I've seen worse. And, uh, and he goes, but it's okay, he's not dead, he's just mostly dead. And, and that's what Jesus says about the church in Sardis, they're mostly dead. That's not a commendation, that's a concession. You're lingering on life support. That's the best I can say about you. And so this church is hard to preach on because it's uh, primarily if not unilaterally, negative, critical message. But it's also hard because to some extent, this is always true for the seven churches we're reading. They're short letters. We don't know a whole lot about what's going on behind the scenes. But this is probably the most vague and ambiguous of the seven letters. There's no real sense of what's wrong. There's no specific criticism of, are they disobeying Jesus's commandments? Are they mistreating people? Are they denying things theologically? Have they let false teachers in from the outside? And, and you can just guess because Jesus doesn't say, whatever is going on, they're no longer awake. They have drifted away. And Jesus describes them as mostly dead with a couple of people still lingering on in life support among them. Um, throughout church history, it's often been a, a question, a hard question, that when a church begins to really drift from what Jesus wants it to be, whether the whole denomination does or whether an individual church does, at a certain point, those who are still trying to follow Jesus in it are often left with this hard question. Do we stick around and try to be part of the solution or do we leave because this church is dead? And there's a couple of people left in Sardis that are kind of like that. So there are a couple of people that are still awake, but largely the church has fallen asleep. Largely the church has died. One thing that is helpful, I, I mentioned it right briefly before I read it, the central command that Jesus gives them, verse two, wake up. And that begins the first of five imperative commands. But as we've often seen in these seven letters, usually the first in a sequence is not just first in the sequence, but it's the summary of all the others. Whenever Jesus says, I know your works, your faith, your love, your acts of service. He means, I know your works, that is your love, your faith, your acts of service. Here, wake up is the controlling command that all the others are kind of fleshing out what that would look like to do. Strengthen what remains, repent, remember, and then he repeats it again. It's the only command that's repeated at the end of verse three, if you will not wake up. So the call to wake up is the central idea here. And one thing that's helpful, and there's a, a threat, a warning, as there often is in these letters, that if you don't, Jesus will come like a thief in the night, which is a lot more dangerous if you're sleeping than if you're awake um, when the thief comes. And one thing that is very helpful here, besides having heard our other two passages where this is an image that Jesus uses, I will come like a thief in the night. At least some people will experience it like that, that Paul uses, other New Testament writers use it, and here John uses it. But this is one of the, the letters of Revelation where knowing a little about the historical background is really helpful. So Sardis is just 
a name to most of us. You don't think a whole lot about Sardis. If I asked you, could you tell me one thing about Sardis? Most of us probably couldn't say anything. You might remember that earlier on in the series, I said, these are all churches that are in Asia Minor, that is Turkey in the modern world. Other than that, probably couldn't tell me anything about Sardis. Sardis was very well known in the ancient world. It was probably the best known of the seven cities, more widely in the Greco-Roman world. And at the beginning of the letter, Jesus says, you have this reputation of being alive. You're, you're known People, people know who you are, but you're actually dead. And Sardis was like that as a city. It had earlier been much wealthier, much more prestigious, much more powerful, but it kind of just kind of drifted and it kind of diminished as a city and as a civilization over centuries. But what was most famous about Sardis, and even if we don't know it today, like, like in the ancient world, you probably remember the name of King Midas, the guy with the golden touch, the river that that story kind of popped up along because they found gold in it. And so the story was King Midas had this thing he thought was a blessing. Everything he touched turned to gold, but it turns into a curse. And so he puts his hands into the river and the gold goes into the river to get it. And that river was right down the street from Sardis. It wasn't given gold anymore, but there was an even more famous king in the ancient world from Sardis. His name was Croesus. C-R-O-E-S-U-S, and he was widely known. The great historian of the ancient world, Herodotus, some of you will have heard of, talks about Sardis all the time. And he talks about King Croesus all the time. And King Croesus got into a battle in the 6th century BC with somebody that if you know your Old Testament, you know, Cyrus of Persia. And he was actually, Sardis was so powerful, and, and both in its prestige and in its wealth and in its men, that he actually fought these battles with Cyrus of Persia in the open plain for an entire season, and it was a draw. And then they both, as winter months came, kind of the king of Sardis, Croesus, went back to his fortress, went back to his city and withdrew. But Cyrus, unlike what you would expect in kind of military engagement rules in ancient world, actually didn't withdraw back to his kingdom, but he pressed it and he came to the city and he besieged it. And this was widely seen as the disastrous move by Cyrus because um, Sardis was on a mountain and it was specifically on a summit. And it's Acropolis, which is kind of where the, the throne room was and all the, the main part of the city was at a really high part of the, of the mountain. And in the ancient world, Herodotus talks about this, there was actually a proverbial saying that, here's what it says, that to conquer the Acropolis of Sardis was a proverbial saying for trying to do the impossible. So today, if you try to climb Mount Everest, that's like trying to conquer Sardis. And so Cyrus comes and King Croesus is incredibly unimpressed. He's like, there is no way they're getting in here. It is widely known. This is an invincible, impregnable fortress. And so they just let them stay out there for weeks and they don't make any, the Cyrus and the Persians, they don't make any ground up. And Croesus begins to relax and he begins to not even post guards at the walls of the city anymore. And here's how the city falls. At two o'clock in the morning, a couple of guys from the Persian army literally climb the wall. Nobody is guarding it. They jump in, they walk in, and they open the front doors from the inside, and the army comes in. That happened in the 6th century BC. That's already disastrous. That's They fell asleep. Here's what was really famous about Sardis. It happened again. 300 years later. Antiochus comes in 300 years later. They besiege them. Everybody's like, Sardis is impregnable. Why would you do this? And they fail at a certain point to put guards up there. And a couple of guys climb the mountain, they climb the walls, and they open the front doors of the city from the inside for a second time. This city has been captured and destroyed twice like that. And here Jesus says to them, if you fall asleep, I will come like a thief in the night. 
This is going to have resonance for them. That, that no matter how well off you think you're doing, no matter how impregnable or invincible you feel, if you fall asleep, you are vulnerable. If you fall asleep, you are in danger. And Jesus says to this church, you have a good reputation. Other people, and it's unclear, is it, is it a reputation in the eyes of other Christians? Is this like Redeemer? Like Redeemer is really well known among many Christians and everybody's like, ah, oh, Redeemer, they do so well. Or is it in the eyes of the culture? Or is it in the eyes of both? It's unclear, but they have a good reputation. But what's going on inside the church no longer lives up to that. They're actually slumbering on the inside. And Jesus says, you need to strengthen what remains. You need to wake up. Maybe you noticed that we actually sang a couple of songs a few minutes ago that talk about the name that God writes our name, that God writes on his hands, that God has engraved on his heart, that, that he knows my name. The, the word name kind of is the key word that runs through this thread right away in verse two, when he says, wake, sorry, verse one, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. The word reputation there is not what it actually says. You have a name of life, but you're actually dead. That is your name is how other people recognize you. Somebody says Nick Nowak, and immediately, if you know who I am, a bunch of stuff comes into your mind. That's who he is. Sardis has a name that they are a church that is alive, but they are actually dead. Then down in, let me see, in verse four, notice it says again, yet, you still have a few names in Sardis. There's a couple of Christians in this church that are still alive. And then in verse five, the promise, the one who conquers will be clothed like this in white garments, and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. Rather, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. A name we all recognize, I think this is transculturally true throughout human history. A name on the one hand is, is an identifier. You know who somebody is by their name, but we also know that names can be deceptive. The names don't always match up to the reality. Um, one of the scenes that, that, um, that, that Helen and I always love to joke about when we walk through New York City is I know it's not the season for it anymore, but an elf with Will Ferrell, when he first arrives in New York City and he finds the little rinky-dink bodega that has a sign outside that says the world's greatest cup of coffee, and he walks in and he goes, congratulations, you guys, you did it. Oh, it's such an honor to meet you. We're like, that's not actually the world's greatest cup of coffee in that bodega, right? Like there are names that do not live up to what they claim. And that's the name in Sardis at this point. It's not like that anymore. So at the very least we can say, given that they used to be something that they're no longer, that they need to wake up lest they suffer this disaster, that Jesus come and take away what they have been given in Christ, or at least they, they, they're no longer a church, that this kind of warning of judgment that we also heard in Jesus, that we also heard in Paul, at the very least, we can say that, that to use a, a modern phrase, we often say this in organizations or in businesses, that the church in Sardis, if I had to describe what's going on without being specific, because I don't know, is there a church that has experienced mission drift? They have lost the plot. They have forgotten what they're doing. They have forgotten what they're supposed to be, and they are slumbering, and something else is now setting the agenda. It might be something outside of them in society. It might be just kind of selfish priorities of, of those within or a complacency, but whatever it is, the majority of the church is adrift from mission, is, is, is complacent, is falling asleep, and they've lost the plot. 
And Jesus is calling them back to that. A couple of ways we see that, and you often hear me say this, but I think it's always important, is if we ever begun, actually, let me, let me share a story that Kirk has shared with me a couple of times in the last year. We, most of you have been to our building right down the street. We bought our building, which is a three-story, very skinny storefront building in the West Village in 1973. And at some point, I'm guessing, Kirk can correct me if I'm wrong, probably around the mid-80s, Kirk is in the building. And, and you know we've been there for a couple of years at that point. And somebody knocks on the door one day. And Kirk is trying to get a sense of, what are you looking for? And they don't know it's a church anymore. And it turns out that what neighborhood church used to be, even though it was technically some kind of store, was it was the local bookie. And so if you wanted to make bets, you came and somebody showed up a few years later and they either owed money or they wanted money. And whatever was going on there was a front for something else. The church at Sardis is now a front for something other than a church. It is there for some other reason and it has fallen asleep and it has lost the plot. Churches that are no longer um, kind of on mission or are now letting the Republican Party or the Democratic Party set the agenda. And now it's just make America great again or a rainbow flag, but some other agenda is coming in and we're just a front for that and we're not a church anymore, which raises the question in Lucy's baptism is a good reminder of this. What exactly is our mission? What exactly are we supposed to be doing? What, what will we be if we're not a front for something else? We haven't fallen asleep and forgotten. And to get there, let's look at the beginning that, that you'll remember if you've been tracking with us in this series. All seven letters begin not with the church, but with Jesus. And a reminder of the visual description that was given to us of Jesus in chapter one. And if you look at the very beginning of this letter, verse one, the words of him, Jesus, who two things. One, has the seven spirits of God. It's very unclear, very mysterious. What exactly is that? He has the seven spirits of God and he has the seven stars. The seven stars already appeared in an earlier church. I think it's Ephesus. And that's uh, in, in the ancient world. They only knew there were seven planets, not nine or eight today. They thought there were seven planets. And so somebody who had the seven stars in his hand was somebody who controlled the universe. Roman coins at this period of time on the back had a, had a picture of the Roman emperor and he was holding seven planets, seven stars in his hand. So this is saying Jesus is in control. Jesus is Lord of the universe. Jesus gets to set the agenda, not the Roman empire, not the left, not the right, not anybody else, not even you guys. Jesus has the agenda, but he also has the seven spirits of God. And basically there's two possibilities for what that means. One is that it could refer to seven angels, seven spiritual beings, and seven, if you've ever read Revelation, you know, there's a lot of sevens in Revelation. There's seven of this or seven of that, but there's a couple of reasons that I think it's not seven angels. The first is that the word spirits is never used for angels in the rest of the book. And in general is not a word that's usually used for angels. But the most important reason is if you have Revelation 3 open, just flip back to chapter one. Look at verse four of chapter one and how Revelation begins. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, which we're now working through, we're in the fifth, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. So that sounds Trinitarian. There's the father, there's the son, and there's the seven spirits in between them. And two, grace and peace come to you from the father, the son, 
and the seven spirits. And in Paul's letters and John's letters and every letter, nothing ever is grace and peace to other people unless it comes from the divine side of the ledger. And so the seven spirits of God are the Holy Spirit here. It's a way of saying that not just this church gets the spirit, but Jesus gives the spirit to that church. It's a reference to the fullness of the spirit that Jesus has that he can give. And maybe there's an echo of Isaiah 11, where the coming Messiah will have the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of might, of the fear of the Lord, and seven things are listed. It might be an echo of that. But I think we're, we're being given a picture of Jesus as one who not only has all authority in heaven on earth, but who also has the Holy Spirit. And I think that's significant for what is going on with Sardis. Because again, you could hear this. And, and just so you know, even though this is a very negative letter, it is going to end with hope, not just because I'm going to force it that way, because I do think, and because you don't want to be a downer on Lucy's baptism day, but because I think there is hope here, is the Holy Spirit is not a threat. It's not um, a warning. The seven stars are that Jesus is in control, but it's a promise. It's an encouragement. And so three points just to close out that we learn from Sardis. The first is this, and I've already mentioned it, but that what it means to be a Christian is not just to have been awakened at your baptism when you became a Christian, but is to stay awake. To be a Christian is to stay awake. That command, I would encourage you, go home at some point this week, get on a Bible website, look it up in your own Bible, awake, wake up. It is all over the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, there's this great line, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And that might be a baptismal statement in the early church. That's what happens at baptism. Somebody comes back to life. Somebody wakes up from slumber. But now we're being told the whole Christian life is, but you can't fall asleep 10 minutes later. You can't drift off to slumber. Two years later, the Christian life is about staying awake. It is about, and let me read you this quote from Oliver O'Donovan about how this metaphor, being awake, and one of the things that's that, that I'm a bit, reluctant or, or hesitant to get into this is the language of being woke is all over our culture today and in ways that are generally unhelpful and in ways that are generally mission drift for Christians. I am very uninterested in whether you are woke or anti-woke. I think it's a really uninteresting statement to make. It, it's kind of like being for or against love or justice. It, at this point in time, all it means is whether you identify as left or right, and therefore it's a pointless metaphor. But it comes one, out of scripture, and two, it comes out of the black church, uh, of this idea that overall, there's a lot of people who have lost the plot around us, but we need to stay awake, even though many other people have not stayed awake. And so it's a metaphor about our agency, not about holding some perspectives rather than others. And here's what Oliver O'Donovan says about the command to stay awake. The command to wake up is addressed in the New Testament to the church, which ought to be able to count if any agent could on being awake already. It, all, it sets the church in a perpetual moment of crisis, putting us on the spot by relating the achieved past, what Christ has already done, to the future of Christ's coming and to the immediate future of attention and action that are required of us here, now, always. Wakefulness is anything but a settled state something you can presume on, as we can usually presume as you walk through the day of being awake as you go about your business. It brings us sharply back to the task at hand, the deed to be performed, the life to be lived. Waking is thrust upon us. We do not consider it, attempt it, and then perhaps achieve it. it is, we are claimed for it, 
seized by it. That is why the command to stay awake is not just one metaphor among many for our moral responsibility, but stands guard over the birth and entire life of the Christian's renewed moral responsibility that is given to them when they become a Christian. We are to stay awake. We are to stay alert. That, that, that's what we are called to do. How does a Christian fall asleep? And kind of like falling asleep in life, I am a terrible sleeper. A couple of you maybe have heard me say before, I've been a terrible sleeper almost my entire life. It is a real curse to my wife, Helen. You can pray for her. I wake up constantly. It takes me forever to fall asleep. Various reasons for that. But most of us, even if you're not as bad as me, you don't usually lay down in bed and eight seconds later, you're asleep. It's a gradual process. You kind of resist it. Kids love resisting going to sleep at night. And so how does that happen? There's this great line, pretty famous line in Ernest Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises. I always laugh when I hear it, but it's also so insightful where there's these two characters. It's a very brief scene. And one character has earlier in the story been doing really well in life. He's on top of the world. Everything's going well. And then another guy runs into him a couple of years later and his life has fallen apart. And he says to him, how do you go bankrupt? What happened? And the guy goes two ways, gradually, then suddenly. And it's a great metaphor for what goes wrong in the Christian life. Gradually, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is right there throwing a big bowl of water on your face to wake you up. But all you're aware of is moment by moment that I think I'm awake, but I'm not. And so we are called to always stay awake, to be alert, to stay on mission, to be focused on the new life that God has set before us. And so the Church of Sardis also, here's the second thing, reminds us, and we've heard it for a number of weeks now in our passage from 1 John, which always proceeds in this season, our confession of sin. And if you've been joining us on the Wednesday night Bible study, the book of James is filled with this, which is do not be deceived, brothers and sisters. Do not deceive yourselves. The church at Sardis reminds us of the danger of self-deception. It's not just that they're asleep, but they think they're awake. It's not just that they're dead, but they think they're alive. It's not just that they are drifting from mission, but they, they're impressed with themselves. One of the most psychologically complex and scary things about us as human beings is our capacity to deceive ourselves. It's one thing to deceive other people. It's one thing to deceive somebody in your family or friend or coworker, but our ability to deceive ourselves is infinitely more complex because you're not aware you're doing it or you're not aware or not owning it and not admitting that you do it. Jeremiah reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? One of the metaphors that our culture uses today, which I think by and large is very helpful, is gaslighting. You don't want to gaslight somebody else. To gaslight somebody comes from this old movie, a couple of us talked about this in the last season, where a husband is trying to get rid of his wife, and he's slowly turning the gas up in the kitchen. And she's like, I feel faint. I, I feel dizzy. Like, is there a smell here? And he's kind of like, no, 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 no. It's just in your head. Everything's fine. But he's turning the gas up. And that becomes a metaphor for gaslighting somebody. They're being abused, but you're saying, you know what? It's actually I'm being amazing, and you're actually just a wimp. And you're trying to explain somebody else's experience to them, and you're being deceptive to them. You're gaslighting them. It's a good thing that our culture is becoming more aware of that. The, the ability human beings have to be abusive, to be manipulative, to be toxic. What our culture, I think, has forgotten and is worse at than we used to be is our ability to gaslight ourselves is our ability to narrate our experience to ourselves in a way that is false, in a way that is not true, in a way that doesn't line up with reality. And so here is Jesus saying to the church, do not be deceived. T.S. Eliot is at the beginning of your bulletin. T.S. Eliot says in his four quartets, human beings cannot bear very much reality. 
If you don't know that about yourself, if I don't know that about myself, I'm like, you know who I am? Somebody who's always telling the truth. Somebody who's just always lined up with reality, always believing about myself what is true, then we don't actually know ourselves very well. Richard Sibbs, an old Puritan, put it this way. It would be an easy thing to be a Christian if religion only stood, only consisted in a few outward works and duties. Do this, go to church, pray. But because it doesn't, to take the soul, your own soul, to task, to deal roundly with our own hearts and to let conscience have its full work, to let the Holy Spirit convict us of sin and to bring the soul into spiritual subjection unto God, this is not so easy a matter. Why? Because the soul, my soul, your soul, the soul out of self-love is loath to enter into itself truly, lest it should have other thoughts of itself than it wants to have. And that is a universal human proclivity to not see ourselves the way that we actually should, but to see ourselves the way we want. This is not exactly the same as this, but it's a metaphor for it. It is still the case for me today. Even though I've been teaching and stuff I've done has been recorded and put on YouTube and online for, for a decade and a half now, if I walk into a room where my voice is being played, I hate it. If I see even a glimpse of me on video, I hate it. Some of that is being an introvert, but mostly it's about, that's not what I think I sound like. That's not what I think I look like and how I move. And I don't want to think about myself other than I already do. And that's also true morally. And so this church is reminded, do not assume that your perception of yourself is the actual truth. And so third and lastly, well, you could easily despair once you recognize the capacity for self-deception, because how do I know I'm not deceiving myself? What, what, what reference point do I have outside of my own psychology to say, well, here's how I know I'm not deceiving myself. And this is ultimately why Jesus holds the seven spirits, that the Holy Spirit is given to us to wake us up, to bring us to life, and to help us to stay awake. And so during the Nicene Creed, every week we confess it. I hope in the weeks to come, you'll pay attention to this. The, the first thing we're told about the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives life to God's people. He's the one who convicts us of sin. He's the one who presents the truth to us. The Holy Spirit is ultimately, not just that we believe certain things objectively, theologically, but the Holy Spirit as God in person, presence, encounter, experiences. We seek after God with the Spirit. We are given new life and continue to give new life. Let me end with this before I just give a conclusion about the spirit. Here's what Ernest Reisinger, who's a Reformed Baptist pastor, maybe 50 years ago said. He said, the greatest need of the church and one of the deepest importance is for the continual, not just one time at the beginning of your Christian life or just one time ever in this local church, but the continual manifestation of the power of the Holy Spirit. I did not say theological theory about the Holy Spirit or just intellectual understanding of what the Spirit does, I said the power of the Holy Spirit. And that has to do with experience, not words. The Holy Spirit is to the life of the Christian what the Creator is to the world. Without God the Creator, the world would not exist, and it would not continue existing. As he sustains and preserves the work, without that, the world would crash out of existence. So likewise, without the Holy Spirit, there would be no Christians in the world, 
And without his continual sanctifying influence, the Christian would know no spiritual growth or power, but would go back to sleep, go back into their grave. And so when Jesus holds out the seven spirits, the, the Holy Spirit, what he's saying is you guys are on life support. You guys are on the verge of disaster, but it's not over yet. The Lord, the giver of life. And so let me end with, uh, with an encouragement and also an encouragement for us as a church. This might seem a bit random, but I want you to go home if this is, is landing on you at all. And I want you to Google a name that you probably don't know. A name from a, a Christian of the second century. His name is Melito. One L, one T, M-E-L-I-T-O. And you'll find that in probably about 50 years after Revelation was written, he became a Christian as a young adult and then became a very significant early church father in the church. And he wrote a lot of important stuff. He really helped the church articulate his faith. And he was renowned for his teaching and preaching ministry, for the way he helped Christians grow, for the way he helped them understand what they should be doing in the world to, to stay on mission. And if you Google him, on his Wikipedia page, because he's that big, he has a Wikipedia page, you will see that he is known as Melito of Sardis. He became a Christian in this church 50 years later, and then became the bishop of this church, which means the church heard what Jesus said here. It got off life support. It came back to life. This was not the end of the church of Sardis. And so in light of Lucy's baptism and in light of just the perpetual reminder that we need to stay awake, there's a lot of things a church can do to go on mission drift but what we need to know is what are we doing here? Like, like we shouldn't be a front for the Republican Party. We shouldn't be a front for the Democratic Party. We're not here to be for or against capitalism or communism, democracy or socialism. It's not what we're here for. What are we here to do? And the Church of Stars reminds us we are in the resurrection from the dead business. That's what we're here to do. We're to share the gospel with others to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to see them grow in their faith, and to see them reflect the image of God, for us to reflect the image of God, that's what we are to do. It doesn't matter what our reputation is, good or bad, known or unknown, we are in the resurrection from the dead business, and Baptism Sunday is always a good Sunday to remember that. That in the early church, we didn't do it here, but in the early church, often, and definitely weren't going to do this, which is you would be kind of naked when you got baptized. I don't exactly know how they pulled that off, but apparently that happened. And on the other side, they would robe you in garments of white. And it was a reminder that we have been awakened, we have been given new life, but now baptism is the beginning of the story, not the end of it. And that's one of the things Kirk reminded, this isn't magic, it doesn't guarantee, it's not an excuse to fall asleep five minutes later, not just for Lucy, but for all of us. And so let's remember that we belong to a savior who not only died and rose again, but who now holds the Holy Spirit to bring us back to life and to keep us awake. And so let's not fall asleep in our own individual lives or as a church. Let's pray.